2009 when I made my first trip to Afghanistan. And the war that had begun in 2001 had by that time been going on for eight years already, which was not even the halfway point of a still unresolved conflict, but the longest active war in U.S. history at that time. So to no surprise, many question the sanity or sensibility of my traveling to such a dangerous place. And just to compile a social studies curriculum, uh, not active military or Doctors Without Borders, but just education for middle schoolers. But the thought of helping American teens understand this isolated and really mysterious world through the lives and stories of Afghan teens, it just made the trip too compelling to pass up. To me, it was really important. And these weren't just any Afghan teens that I would be working with. I actually had the chance to work with uh, a group of teens that had been displaced due to the fighting between Taliban and American troops, which made their view of this world crisis all the more unique and important. Um, you know, while their grandparents and parents had been impacted by the Russian invasion of the 1980s, the power grab of regional warlords in the 1990s, and then the Taliban, which came from Pakistan up until 2001's 9-11, this generation has only known outside disruptors. And even though the Americans may believe we are the liberators of these terror groups, um, and trying to help Afghanistan get back on their feet again, those kids that are caught in the collateral damage and forced to live as refugees, they just don't always see it that way. So my curriculum would help American students discover how their peers at the other end of this global crisis experience daily life, like how they navigated hardships and how their outlook on the future was. So after spending a few weeks with this group of Afghan teens, they had been growing up in a camp for internally displaced people. It was my hope that once American teens understood the plight of their brothers and sisters growing up in this war zone, they'd at least start to navigate the future in a more empathetic way. I also hope that the awareness of their power as U.S. citizens could help them at some point down the road be the thing that helps break through this stalemate and this ongoing global conundrum. And foreign policy aside, you know, it's this young generation, they're inevitably going to meet up again on the world stage at some point as adults. And I figured getting to know each other now, I mean, it could only help spur some long overdue creative thinking. And then at the very least, I hope that by just realizing their, the struggle of these Afghan kids, the struggle to transcend violence, poverty, and isolation, you know, might help American students better transcend the typical teen angst of their own lives. Homework, fitting in, feeling validated. Uh, you know, just think about hearing how cold Afghan winters are and what it took to heat a building with no thermostats and, and just how getting clean water was so challenging. You know, for the Afghans, it just might make the American kids recognize how easy their lives were in comparison. So anyway, by the time I returned to the U.S., things were already off and running with the curriculum. And in just a couple of years, hundreds of students in classrooms all across the country, you know, they're excited to say, I'm, I'm excited to say they were captivated by my narration of these authentic stories of the Afghan kids and these kids who were just determined to create a better life against really the worst odds ever. And teachers, they were stunned. They'd never seen their students so invested in social studies, let alone the world around them. I, I was stunned. Middle schoolers, they're not usually engaged in global community like this. And, you know, they typically consider this kind of stuff very irrelevant to their lives. But this uh, plight of the Afghan teens and this whole world situation had, had become personal. 
and I could not have considered anything a greater success. And even better, when the class was over, when the program would, would end, the, the curriculum would end, I had American students calling me. They were not even content to just be done with it. They wanted to meet me. They wanted to ask more questions. And, and they wanted to help. They wanted to be involved in some way. Even if they didn't know what that was, they wanted to ask. And yeah, they understood how blessed their lives were. And, and they did realize how much they had to give. And, and they just didn't want to know about what was going on in Afghanistan. They really wanted a role in creating change and, and something positive out there. And, you know, some raised some money. They wanted to help send some Afghan kids to go to school. But what I really encouraged was uh, making video messages and, and letters of love and support that I would share on future trips to Kabul when I'd go back to uh, continue working with these Afghan kids out there. Being able to show the Afghan teens these messages from Americans, it really helped them see the Americans more as the quote-unquote good guys, um, even if it was only through the American kids who were forming relationships with them. Because up until that point, yeah, the only thing that they had known of Americans was they were the ones who were dropping the bombs on their villages that were ending up causing a lot of pain for a lot of people, in a, aside from getting the bad guys they were looking for. But everything started to change one day when I got a call from a teacher at the Red Lake Middle School. It's located at the Red Lake Native Reservation where the Ojibwe community lives in northern Minnesota, kind of tucked away in the north woods of uh, the state. And the students there were curious to meet me. Miss Boughton's seventh and eighth graders had read my reports on Afghanistan and learned about the lives of these Afghan teens. And they had some questions that they wanted to ask the creator of this uh, rather unusual social studies program. And I love visiting the schools. I loved talking to students. And the fact that they were here in Minnesota was great. And I was on my way to Red Lake. Um, as I drove there, though, I kind of have to confess I hadn't really given much thought to the native populations in the United States. When I was thinking of American students, I have to admit I was kind of thinking of more of the, the typical American uh, communities like where I grew up in the suburbs and uh, little did I know that I was about to embark on a really uh, important learning curve. Six hours north of the Twin Cities, driving through vast forests, birch, pines, eagles, I get to the Red Lake Reservation, and which is located another 30 minutes outside of the nearest city of Bemidji. So it's pretty remote up there. And as I'm driving through the reservation, I notice how sparsely scattered the homes are, just tucked into the wooded landscape. And yeah, just how little thought that I'd really given this native population since my own middle school days. And you know, all I can really recollect is forced displacement, poverty, chemical dependency, high suicide rates. And as I slowly recollected the plight of this oppressed community, just this sinking feeling began to, to creep in. And by the time I got to the outside of the school, you know, Red Lake Middle School looks like any other American learning institution. Uh, inside, colorful posters, sports schedules, some murals and art lining the wall. You know, the gym is filled with volleyball players and them, so there's some skateboard kids practicing jumps outside and just doing what kids do. According to Ms. Spouton, nearly 100% of the students, though, live below the poverty line. And before school, free breakfast is provided daily just to combat malnutrition. These kids are so poor 
and their families are so not intact that they need to look after them all the way around. Fighting among the kids apparently was commonplace, according to what Ms. Boughton said. Only a few years prior, one of the students there uh, succumbed to his demons, opened fire on his classmates. It was the second major uh, school shooting after Columbine. And uh, there's a lot of suicide claiming the lives of countless other kids. So there's a, a lot of depression going on in the school. But nevertheless, there was a group of 7th and 8th graders very patiently waiting for my arrival. And uh, gathered in a circle, we got together and we discussed in detail. They had a lot of questions about this war in Afghanistan. And they wanted to talk about how it had forced people from their homes and their lands. And we discussed the lack of schools in Afghanistan and how low education was fueling this never-ending cycle of poverty. And we discussed how drugs were used by the people to temporarily remedy hunger, cold, pain, depression. And we discussed the Afghan people's determination to prevent the erosion of their culture amidst the interference of all these outside invaders who who didn't really understand or care about their culture and what was important to them. And by this time, the irony, it was not lost on, on any of us. And I was just squirming in my seat because I, I could see that everything that I was, you know, trying to illuminate about Afghanistan through this curriculum is actually going on in the, in the lives of these Red Lake students. I mean, no, there weren't bombs dropping and, and uh, you know, military troops, you know, in kind of a police state, but the impact and the effect that it had been having is, I think I could understand why it was so compelling for these, for these native kids. But interestingly, when it was time to record their video messages to the Afghan teens who we were gonna get together and, and, and do some filming, their sentiments contained a lot more than just sympathy of privileged teens growing up on the other side of the world. They offered, it was like a cross-cultural support group. It provided this level of care that there, no fundraisers, no thoughts and prayers could ever reach. And it was so obvious. These kids, they are growing up a legacy of poverty and foreign policy agendas and traumatized ancestors. And they understood the plight of these Afghan teens really like few American teens really could. And they shared their worries about violence and drugs and the pain of losing loved ones and the thought of using suicide as a way out. And they shared their anger at the adults in their lives that they felt were letting them down and letting their generation down. And this pull that they had between their, their kind of desires to abandon the reservation uh, against the honorable duty to preserve their culture. Um, and there was this one girl, Vivian, she was this kind of tough Ojibwe girl in a black hoodie. And she had this very blunt message for the Afghan teens. We come from a hard life too. I mean, every day is a struggle and it sucks, but when you learn to grow up, you could see different things. On the res, it's kind of like, what I kind of think of it, it's like a cage. And some people want to break free of that cage, but otherwise me, I kind of feel, I don't feel like I'm locked in or like I'm trapped all the time, but when you grow up on here, you're just kind of like everything that you know. I mean, around my neighborhood, I could remember everything, but if I go out somewhere else, I'm completely lost, and sometimes I miss my home. But other times, I just want to break free and go somewhere else. I'm like trapped in the middle. But there are new things that interest me, and but now I'm kind of making it my own. And, doing something else and realizing that I do have a future in 
No matter what you think of life sucks now, there's always something down the road, no matter what goes on. Know that there is a future and keep that in my mind every day. I wake up every morning thinking, it's going to be the day that I can change everything. I can change my life. I don't have to live this anymore. Just keep being positive and think of all the good stuff that is in your head and put all the bad stuff away for aside. Vivian's message summarized their sentiments. It was like, we get you, you're not alone. But it made me realize how backwards I had had it again. These are probably the only American teens who could really comfort the Afghan kids. Because when young people are hurting, they need to feel a bond with those who truly understand their pain and, and those who can share it and help them move through it, not just try to cheer them up from the outside. So the role that these red light kids had in this was really powerful. At that time, we didn't know it, but we were sitting at the tipping point of a nationwide mental health war zone that would rock the foundation of young people and truly threaten the well-being of their entire generation. Over the past decade, American teens across all sectors and all socioeconomic backgrounds have been caught in a mental health explosion of depression, anxiety, and social isolation. According to research, between 2008 and 2018, the rate of young adults with suicidal thoughts increased 47%. And the number of teens diagnosed with clinical depression grew 37%. Poisoning attempts by girls aged 10 to 12 increased 268%. Since 2009, there have been 288 school shootings, which is 57 times as many as other major industrial nations combined, which is an average of one per week. Trauma continues to seep into every corner of young people's lives as active shooter drills are now part of just regular school activities. And, you know, experts are unsure exactly how to pinpoint this problem because the research is it's still pretty new and it's still all coming out. But between the pressure cooker of social media scrutinization, where these kids are constantly living under the lens of everybody, constant companionship of smartphones at the expense of human connection. They've got overpacked schedules, climate crisis and political wrangling of the climate crisis on their minds, stress of becoming, of course, the next shooting victims. And there's this uh, whole new discovery of sleep deprivation due to late night phone use and the lights from the phone screens disrupt the brain as kids are looking at it into the evening uh, that they're not able to fall asleep early enough. So there's all these new factors, but they're all surrounding the time frame when smartphones have become affordable enough to be part of teens' everyday lives. There's also the rise of these public service announcements and suicide prevention videos that illuminate this paradox of teens living the quote-unquote perfect life in public but suffering depression in silence and busy adults are unable to hear their cries for help and the wait time for school therapist appointments can span weeks and months. Um, I've been to conferences where the teens themselves are the presenters on the plight of their peers just to get the mental health support they're looking for at school and how long it takes for them to actually get it. You know, teen angst, it's, it's nothing new, of course. It's comparing yourself to the cool kids, feeling out of sorts in your new bodies, hormonal mood swings, just navigating a world between the blissful ignorance of childhood and the increasing pressures of young adulthood, but you know, with no experience yet and no power. Um, but the greatest spike of all of these uh, mental health 
symptoms have occurred since 2011, which again, it's about the same time social media burst onto the scene. But regardless, what I find so important is the fact that so many American kids are embracing suicide as their way through these issues. I mean, it's disconcerting to say the least, but between the Afghans and the native communities, at least they know why they're depressed. They're fighting to preserve their legacy against outside forces constantly threatening them. Their lives are a constant struggle of poverty. And in Afghanistan, women especially commit or attempt to commit suicide at extremely high rates because they live in regions where the Taliban loom over them. They have no rights or, you know, they're so undereducated, they see no future. The red light kids, they also understand. They're the legacy of generations of pain, families struggling with alcoholism. And both of these groups kind of feel abandoned and isolated by the rest of the world. So there's this paradox that American teens, the typical American teens who supposedly have it all, they're destructing from within. and. And they have access to all the world's information. They're in near constant engagement with others, yet they describe loneliness as something that constantly plagues them. And recently I saw this PSA, it's a short film, it's called I'm Here Too. And it basically features this teenage girl who on the surface, she looks like she's living the teen dream. She's affluent family, big house, nice things. She goes to a great school, has lots of friends, cool boyfriends. She talks about how she has this image for the rest of the world to see. And she's surrounded by people and quote unquote friends. But her reality is that she's so lonely and she feels so isolated. And when she does try to talk to her parents, they seem too busy all the time multitasking. And her siblings sit at the dinner table with their devices in their hand and everybody's kind of into their own world and and uh, they're they're connected to other things but they're not connected with themselves and finally at the end of the film she swallows a bottle of pills and kills herself and it just got me wondering that if you at least knew why you were really depressed would you be better off than those who were depressed but they didn't know why and the rest of the society seems to not think that there could be possibly be anything wrong. You know, I also wonder about the impact of culture. And despite the harsh reality of poverty and depression, the Afghan and red light kids, they know they're part of a larger culture and one that's worth saving, even if it's constantly on the chopping block. It, It's part of honoring their legacy to push back. And it just got me thinking back to the red light kids, if they are in fact the most capable and qualified American students to be the hero in this shifting emotional war zone. Maybe they are the best ones who can save this generation from themselves. I'm Dina Fessler, this GSD Network. If you'd like to receive more of our podcasts and be on our mailing list, just go to gsdnetwork.net and sign up.